Hello and welcome to the Centric Cities podcast from The Centric Lab. Some of this material will be familiar with listeners to the Conscious Cities podcast where it was previously hosted. However, we decided to bring things in-house to further our intended direction. Centric are all about enhancing user experience in the built environment. One of our main things is mapping out ecosystems and looking for friction and tension points. Well, that's what this podcast aims to explore by interviewing professionals working at the coalface of the businesses that are helping to design, build, manage and dream of the cities of tomorrow. My name is Josh and I'll be your host. This episode, episode two, was originally recorded in April 2017 as we sat down with Dr. Hugo Spears as we were preparing for the Conscious Cities Conference in the month thereafter. Dr. Spears acts as scientific advisor for the Centric Lab and we took this opportunity to sit down and explore where neuroscience is and how it's being applied to industry. Dr. Spears is a reader in neuroscience at the University College London where he is also director of the Spatial Cognition Research Group. Dr. Spears, amongst many things, is also one of the leads of the Ecological Brain Project, a four-year PhD program funded by the Legal Home Trust. It is a world-first research grant focused on understanding the scientific opportunities of applying neuroscience-based technologies and theories in the real world, where it has only really been previously able to be tested in the lab. Dr. Spears is a great guy, and one of the things that really sets him apart is his articulation of such a complex field of research. So, without any further ado, we should get on with the show and listen to Hugo himself. Happy to be here. Excellent. Um, It would be remiss of me to introduce you uh, from a historical point of view, so I'm wondering whether you can uh, explain a little bit about uh, your journey within neuroscience to date, the position that you hold currently, some key studies and kind of what you're working on at the moment sure. in particular. Sure, so I'm a neuroscientist at UCL, University College London. I run a research t- team called the Spatial Cognition Group at the university. Uh, and my journey in neuroscience was starting doing a degree in neuroscience and sort of carrying on from there through PhD. But early on, I got quite interested in how our brain represents space. Uh, and the, re- the reason I got lured into that um, was... Um, I became less interested in kind of primary how our brain, uh, you know, deals with sensation, how it deals with action. There's more of the stuff going on between those two. So what's happening in our brain when we construct, uh, you know, our kind of sense of the world uh, and use it to simulate things in our brain, to plan, to retrieve memories, all of those things. But best, really, in what I found was that the world work on spatial. Um, mapping how our brain represents spaces we've been in seem to be far the most developed and exciting area to work in and it, it still is i think uh, and in 2014 there was a nobel prize awarded for the amazing discoveries in that area so that's how i got into it and the sort of key studies i've worked on have been um, i think one of the key things i did was studying london taxi drivers with eleanor mcguire so um, we were eleanor mcguire discovered that london taxi drivers ones who drive the black cabs that their posterior hippocampus gets larger the longer they've been driving a black taxi cab, unlike any other sort of experts. So could you explain a little bit about what the posterior hippocampus uh, region sure. is and why that was actually an interesting finding? Good please. point. So the Sun newspaper ran with, whoa, cabbies' brains are weird. Um, but the actual fact is this bit of the brain, the hippocampus, is the key bit of the brain across all mammals that seems to be important for uh, remembering the past and creating a map in your head of space. And so with taxi drivers, it seems to, it's expanded in size. There's just, it's a bit like they're growing a muscle inside their head. It's just, it's not a muscle. It's a bit of brain that's getting bigger um, the more they do that. 
Uh, and it was quite a remarkable stud, uh, study that Eleanor McGuire um, found that. And I went on to look at how do they use it by putting them into a two million pound simulation of London streets uh, and studying their brain activity with uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging, which is fMRI. Um, we could see how as they drive and, and uh, plan their way through their, their journey, they're using it. Um, so that's sort of what one of the sort of key things I've done. But when I set up my own research team, uh, I combine a whole vast array of different methods. Um, so brain, different types of brain imaging. I work with patients. Uh, we use virtual reality. Um, we record individual cells um, in various different setups. So I, d I do different species, different uh, technology, and um, we also get out into the cities. One of the things we've been trying to do is, is to study people in the real world as they learn real spaces uh, and then record brain activity. So is there anything you can talk about that you're doing at the moment, uh, perhaps out in the public or in the lab, with regards to the last point you just said about how are people navigating a city around them? And maybe there's a, an example or a case study you have. Yeah, so we, we've done a, we had a paper that came out in Nature Communications um, earlier this year uh, where we're looking at how when we took people around Soho and they didn't know the area in London before, had to get them to learn that, that, that set of streets uh, on foot, walking around it with a tour guide, and then we put them in our MRI scanner with a film simulation where we allowed them to re-experience those streets first person um, as they experienced journeys through the streets. And we looked to see their brain activity, what it was doing whilst they were travelling through those streets. Uh, and we found that effectively their brain is simulating all the possible paths that they can they could take in the future uh, whenever they step into a new street. Uh, but that, that isn't going on when they're just walking down the street, when they're doing various other things. There's something about entering a new bit of space that drives that activity. Um, and certain bits we're doing kind of locally, how many streets can I, I take? And other bits of the brain we're looking at, how globally connected is the street I've entered into? Um, and that's, that's been a really useful bit of research because we've been able to tie together brain methods, so neuroscience, studying the brain, with analytical methods in architecture where we were using this method known as space syntax to pull apart the different streets to understand the connections between different bits of the street network uh, and finding a relationship between these two. Um, so what it, what it means in simple terms is if you give me a plan of, say, Manhattan or some complicated city um, in Malaysia, let's say, I can tell you what your brain is likely to be doing as you travel different routes through those city streets. Or if you're planning a new, uh, a new garden city, let's say, we can get an idea now of what your brain might likely be going through um, as you experience that city. Not all the things you would have, but just we've got a bit of a better lockdown onto what's happening in terms of how you're um, processing the street network. So it's quite a complex process, um, as, as one might be able to understand, that there's a whole variety of factors coming into play here, not least the technology that you might use. Um, and you probably have to play a whole series of simulations to perhaps forecast what might go on. But, you know, with that involved, how complex and how long are these studies to uh, produce? Mm. That's a good question. So it can take, uh, some studies can be quite short, and by short I would say, uh, you know, you've, you've thought up the idea and in a couple of months you've gone, got the data, um, and then often it takes much longer to really put it fully together and write up. So, you know, the fastest we'd turn around a study would be within a year, I think. But the study I've just mentioned in Nature Communications, uh, that was an odyssey of about uh, seven years. Well, of conceptualizing, having the concept of what we wanted to do, 
developing the whole paradigm. Nobody's really taken people into Soho or anywhere in the world where you, you know, make them walk around and then bring them into an MRI scanner and actually re-experience it in that way. So it was a whole new way of, you know, how do you technically do that? Um, so, so these studies can take a very long time, and it's just that the, the major time consumption often is the analysis. So how you're looking through the MRI, in this case, magnetic resonance imaging data from the brain, there's a lot, lot you can do with that, really. So is that just from the point of view that it's getting um, researchers, analysts, uh, whether it be PhD students and people like yourself to mm. comb through the data? Or is it much we don't have strong enough technologies out there on a processing capability or a, a data capture ability such as sort of like mobile EEG uh, recordings mm. uh, and devices? So which one of those is kind of the... Mm. You know the, the 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 blocker in the road as such at the moment. So, so there are two blockers there. One is one is as you've identified the is the researchers' time to actually go through and crunch the data. Um, so that is one of the blocks. But it's really worth considering that it's not just it's not like a task you say I need you to generate a, you know some new images for this. You know go away and design these and come back to me. A lot of the analysis goes through a process of. Um, you know, you run some data, you get back some, some output, and you have to then think about it really hard. How does this relate to this vast literature out there that you're going to try and publish your new story into? So it requires kind of cross-checking and, and understanding updates and how the community you're trying to speak to understand your data. So it's a heavily involved process, and it requires, you know, some time just sitting on a couch for the afternoon and thinking and doing nothing else, just thinking. Um, I think that's quite easy to underestimate. So even if you do have a lot of people crunching through things, they still need time to just mull and talk and think. Uh, it's not just typing and, and, and uh, you know, running, uh, running simulations and analysis. The other thing you mentioned is technology. So with the MRI, um, we would have liked to have just taken people out to Soho, made them walk around, and then analyse their brain activity as they try and find their way in those streets. Uh, MRI is, is, you know, many, many tons of weight for this huge medical scanning device. You can't move it at all. So we had to come up with an innovative way of bringing the real world into the, the lab in that instance. But the new technology you mentioned, mobile uh, EEG, so electroencephalography, is one possible method that do, might allow Do you want to give to just it. a little description about what that is? You know, what does that mean? Is that like a hat someone wears or, I don't know, could you give yeah, something on that? absolutely. So there are different types of brain imaging methods. So EEG, electroencephalography, is a set of electrodes, so wires, that you put into a cap that just then rest on the top of someone's head, on their scalp. Um, those wires, those electrodes, record the minute changes in brain activity that occur inside the brain that transmit um, through the scalp, through your skin, to these electrodes sitting on top of your head. Um, and it's possible to detect minute fluctuations in the signals. Um, and there are, there are real challenges with analysing that sort of data. Um, and traditionally, you, know, you can't really have people moving around because the equipment's also not been mobile. It's quite heavy. Uh, and difficult to control. So there's two things that the equipment needed to be made portable, but also that you've got to develop methods for dealing with the vast amount of noise that happens when you have someone looking around, moving, rotating their neck. All of these things cause problems for artifacts you see in the EEG signal. So teams of people have been starting to move on that and technologies are coming out where they can provide uh, really high density, lots and lots of these electrodes. The more electrodes you have, the more chance to detect the um, the artifacts in your signal and then remove them effectively. 
Um, so it's really still very early days with that sort of technology. Um, and there's a lot of interest in it. Uh, and it definitely needs to be more done um, to explore it. But what's exciting about it is it potentially gives you the capacity to take someone, take, say, seven hours of recording. So you strap someone, um, this device, onto someone's head. It's just like wearing a really quite tight-fitting hat. Hmm. So it just looks a bit freaky because you've got these electrodes <laughs> sticking out. Uh, but they kind of, once you get used to it, you could sit across your entire seven hours a day, let's say, and have your brain recorded. And you could do that over many days and start to see how your brain activity is varying across your days uh, as you work and start to understand how the brain actually is operating in a relatively natural situation. Uh, for someone like me, just typing emails all day would be quite boring, but there'll be other people doing different jobs and social interactions that it will be very interesting. We should be able to start learning how people's brains operate in the real world. So I think what's quite uh, interesting about what you're talking just there, so this is this is revelatory stuff on uh, on an evolutionary and a human scale to have these great insights into why we pick a certain path, how we understand and comprehend navigation in our own brains, that this is this is fundamental to how we move around cities, how we might move around rooms or hospitals, whatever it may be. And yet one of the things that we're, you know, you're identifying is that there is a, a bit of a blocker when it comes to uh, the investment in the technology side. And I, I don't know whether you, you have any comments or ideas or awareness uh, about what the kind of gaps are in perhaps further investment into sort of neurotechnologies, if that's the right phrase to use, and you know who is leading this uh, this journey at the moment? Is it here in the UK where we have such great institutions such as UCL and Cambridge, um, or or is it are the Americans leading, or is it perhaps uh, th- those in Asia? Is there you know with this technology that we see huge levels of investment go into the kind of the you know the software market through venture capital funds? Uh, you know, what's your awareness and connection of people here in the UK that might be exploring further sort of neurotechnologies? Uh, I think I think it is, like you said, really early days. There's a lot of unknown out there about how effective this is. We really need to test it. So you, I, mean, I think the UK um, is, is quite well placed for this. There's a lot of people working on this sort of thing here. We're still not talking huge numbers of people, handfuls of people, but there's not that many worldwide uh, doing this. Um, so sort of a sense of excellence in, in Berlin and also in the west coast of America. There are some particular teams, very, very well funded, particularly in America, exploring some of these ideas. Um, but as I said, you're, you're facing some real challenges when you're trying to look at something as noisy as the real world with neurotech. And so you, you find a lot of people highly sceptical of the... Um, the out- potential for outcomes. So I- I'm quite sceptical about a lot of the stuff I read because the... Oh, pick your favourite, go on. <laughs> well, yeah, I think it's without pointing the finger exactly one person, it's more that there are a lot of um, a lot of people doing things with mobile EG uh, where they haven't got really a lot of electrodes and there's not a lot of effort to really pull out the, the, the noise. So you don't know whether it's people squinting, you know, or there are, there are a big problem with is that eye, eye movements really generate a lot of electrical activity. And so you don't know whether it's these sort of things that are driving the, the signal. Um, and uh, I think that sort of tech problem um, of, like, not having enough power in your tech is, is an issue there. Um, but I think we are on the cusp of really moving beyond that, I can see. Yeah. 
So, so what do you feel is the kind of result on the, or the scepticism you have behind the sort of the poor technology? Um, uh, is it that people are making almost false claims with the data that they have? I think I've just seen examples where it's it's often it's reached the BBC sofa, you know, the breakfast news or some sort of wow, this new exciting chance to do this, and it is true. Like so, this is like we've discussed an exciting new avenue for research. Uh, but unless you've got, um, you know, the proper grade uh, facility equipment really here, uh, you know, it's going to be very hard to make meaningful results come out of that. So you, you do sort of see those examples. Um, but I think, I, I hope this is going to change. I think it is a really meaningful um, approach. It's just the big challenge. It's quite an unknown. I think another thing is that the, you know, the companies out there that might exploit it, it's not clear yet for them what it is this is going to show because there aren't really nice examples of of this yet um but the to give one example of what you would get with mobile eg that you wouldn't get with um, other approaches so what you might do is say you want to look at productivity in a company and you want to improve and understand why people are particularly productive under certain conditions um you know you can you can use questionnaires you can study their you know how much they produce in terms of emails what the conditions were etc etc um all sorts of traditional methods but actually, with something like uh, mobile EG, you can record the brain activity across the day and look millisecond by millisecond and see how the dynamics in the brain are changing for that person across the day. And people have done some quite remarkable things with, um, you know, looking at uh, heart rate changes or galvanic skin responses, another biosensing method for looking at how stressed someone might be. Um, or just movement activity profiles. Some really exciting kind of tech in terms of, you know, uh, things like Fitbit devices that tell you how much activity someone is doing. They can tell you actually quite a lot, but they're quite removed from what's actually causing the in a company the productivity, the output of the company. In most companies is to do with the brain. Is somebody actually able to process the information and uh, you know re- deliver the report they need to do? It's very brain based. Uh, we just haven't got it to the coal face really there. Um, so I think the, the potential tech, the chance of using that tech is really high. It's just there are no great examples we can point to yet because it's only just emerging. So it sounds like you're, or I, I mean, I'm assuming in my will and my want, that the the technology opportunity and the ability to analyse the data that comes through is a kind of missing or a great data set to then combine with some of the more physical reactions and data that we're getting from things like Fitbit to give people greater insight. Is that where, is that where we kind of feel that we're steering and we, we have a big exploratory uh, phase to go on at the moment, but it's actually with the right sort of metrics, with the right methodologies, with the right ethics to go into it, that actually there's a huge opportunity mm. to start pairing these data sets and understanding what is correct in what type of environment does this methodology work is it right how can we peer review is that where we feel at the moment they're sort of looking in the from how to take sort of neuroscience on the sort of built environments and in people's sort of navigation and movement and decision making side of things yeah it's really is only just beginning i think there are only a few teams really looking at this idea but there's been a growing interest in in combining different types of tech to study people in the real environment um, I just think neuroscience has, hasn't really edged into that so far because of the, the challenge you get when you study brains is that you get potentially a lot of noise and the technologies typically. So the most 
predominantly used way of measuring brain activity is MRI. It's completely on, you have to lie inside a big tube effectively, the MRI scanner. It's not suitable. So um, I think that's really held back the integration of um, the neuroscience into, say, other technology for the built environment. So I've got I've got a question. We're going to change it slightly and and move it because with some of the things that we're skirting around, um, you know, talking about are pe- what people are doing, and there's this big question, and lots of people are talking about it. When when we start to understand what people do, can we start to predict what people do? And all sorts of people, from Stephen Hawking to Elon Musk uh, to uh, individuals, are very concerned about the role of artificial intelligence, uh, the way it can control perhaps. People people through algorithms and there's this fear around releasing one's data uh, this fear that the data they'll give over will replace and they'll become redundant you know it's it's, it's an apocalyptic scenario inside one people you know inside people's minds mm. and it's within that it's its own spectrum but you know on this idea of prediction and you know through the studying of the human brain you know we, we could start in theory to build up these models as as a neuroscientist uh, what is your opinion on sort of prediction through algorithms at the moment? That's a really interesting question. I mean, how um, I think people are right to be concerned. As a neuroscientist, I can see the you know the data we deal with, and you know there is beyond my immediate field, you can see how lots of data has been gathered. Um, so that there is potential risk there for someone to your you know if if, if somebody knows a lot about you. Um, you know, you get sort of more fraud, like identity theft, etc., uh, and manipulation. So there, there is a there is a risk out there. But at the same time, that's countered against the real potential for positive gain. Um, so on a, on a really more boring, mundane level, like being being advertised stuff you genuinely might want to buy, and not being advertised stuff you don't want to buy, is is actually not necessarily a bad thing for you or the company trying to sell you the stuff. So that's one way we've seen society change uh, with these algorithms on Facebook as a very clear example. Um, whether you think that's good or bad is, is another issue. Um, the the more worrying one is is just if you take that to extreme end that we start to build more and more and more sophistication and more information that humans become highly predictable individuals. Um, you know we can make good estimates of what you're like when you're likely to eat this or go somewhere or when you're going to feel low when it's all mapped out for your future. I mean, I don't think we believe it's going to be so precise. You know, humans are full of random things. We don't, we're not, we're not totally predictable. Um, the world isn't like that. Um, but we are moving towards a situation where, you know, things we're going to have to expect to be much more predictable. Um, where that's going to end up is, is not clear. Uh, but it is something we need to think about. We need to think about the ethics around that. Um, and I think maybe that's one way in which... I'd like to see personally more interaction between universities and companies, where I do see interact with companies who are running all sorts of things, oh, vast amounts, really exciting data, where they can make a really big difference to the world. Uh, and I think it's very important they do. And I do get the sense these companies, it's like a, a no-brainer they wouldn't want to do that. The problem is the ethics of knowing how you're going to guard yourself against misuse of that data. And I think that's where... Um, you know, universities, ethics boards and researchers who deal with these things should be able to reach out and say, you know, we should be able to provide that service 
uh, and think more about integrating with companies over these sorts of data. And you get there are lots of great examples, but I just don't think it's been um, well organised to, to date, for example. And do you think that needs like a top figurehead? Because I mean, one of the big stories that comes out about uh, sort of ethics board or companies to review these great uh, ideas is like OpenAI, who are, mm. I think they're based at Stanford, and forgive, forgive mm. my ignorance, I've got that wrong, but you know, that the backers of that include people like Elon Musk and, and as well people like Peter Thiel, mm. and their, their one role is to identify and understand sort of what artificial intelligence is going to be, and then it's hypothetical positives and negatives mm. and you know we've got these people in private industry running forward with severe sorry not severe the high levels of capital that they're able to invest in these ways and when you sadly go through things like um the the uk government's policy on artificial intelligence you're you know through the website you're going to skirt around and find the odd paragraph or two and so you know we do have a bit of a an issue that mm. central governments, certainly here in the UK, I know the US is, you know, they tried with the Brain Initiative under Obama. Uh, they put a lot of money in, realised they didn't, they over, you know, they uh, they they bit off more than they could actually chew. But the, you know, the, the role between academia and industry does it need a, a strong figurehead to come through, or or is this something that can just be started up through better conversations, more people knocking on doors, companies knowing that they can approach universities? Mm. This is just really a personal opinion rather than mm. any sort of any professional right. opinion you might have. No, I mean I think I think it's it's um, it could it could always be better. I think it is something that could be significantly improved, but you do get the sense in the UK, um, I have from my experience of, of it, institutions like Innovate UK really making a big difference to trying to drive forward things that wouldn't happen without their intervention to make these things possible. And you get institutions like the Alan Turing Institute uh, for you know data analytics who are really partnering up with lots of companies to make a big difference. Um, these are really impressive, you know, organisations that make a big difference to the UK's competitiveness here and provide these links. I think it's just that I get more of a sense that it's the beginning of a journey and people are still trying to to integrate this more uh, than has been in the past. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it could be made more easy. You know? <laughs> um, you'd like to see more clear routes to... How best, for example, to work with, say, PhD students across universities embedded in, in industry. The government have done a wonderful job of, like, in, in the previous governments and so on, of generating and the, the, the research councils really of having these what are known as case studentships, where you're you're out in industry partly and in university. Um, but I think they need more of these, and they need to be more organised really um, and to coordinated. Uh, to make this sort of stuff happen, yeah. Mm, it's it's something that means a lot to us at Conscious Cities where, you know, the, the purpose of, of the movement and the conference series, for example, where I know you're speaking, uh, is to, to take the opportunity to understand how different industries can coordinate much better. So, you know, the, the day that we do and the, you know, last year's conference and the journals and the meetups, it's a great variety of people and that's part of the purpose is to help inform those in urban planning who generally are quite well informed what really is going on in, in academia, what tools can they take from that, what models can they form, what research capabilities can they go mm. but also to make industry aware of what's actually at their fingertips, who can be the, the pioneer, who, who can take hold of something and, and that, that's really the, 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 the opportunity and I think that's where we 
tend to want to look where how can we take ideas out of the lab how can we show industry there is a a, a well not that there's not a value but an immediate value of understanding what's going on behind the sort of the uh, the, the closed doors of universities in the center of, of cities a lot of the time that is there something that really excites you at the moment about what you can take out of the lab and I know we talked about EEG is that still the main one or is there is there something that you're really excited or you think there's a great opportunity on whether on a micro or a macro scale about a big city or an area where you think we can really progress this field over the next sort of five years I, I mean EEG we've spent time talking about is, is one particular method it sort of fits into the the exciting advances in wearable tech. And so there's, there's, there's tech you can wear going out that, that where scientists can learn much more about how humans are interacting with the environment um, and, and where they are in the environment with GPS tracking is quite remarkable. So where I see um, the research potentially going as a real exciting potential is the idea of gathering together people who work in human-computer interaction to study humans and computers and technology around that. So one of the big things there is tracking people. Because if you can track people, then you can learn where they are. Um, and that then leads into the other bit that's really exciting is all the research around the built environment. So studying streets, how they're coordinated, the spatial information and trajectories that people go in. So this sort of analysis of once you've got the tech to track people, what you can then do with that. And if you then add that with research in, in neuro- neuroscience and psychology on people, once you start to integrate those three areas together, uh, there's a huge potential to really learn about how people interact with the environment based on who they are and which environment they're in um, for the betterment of um, you know, humans. So in the sense that we can start to understand what makes a healthy city, what makes a connected city you know, that runs well, um, you know, how do we solve certain problems uh, in certain places, you know, why, why, you know, how do you get a school that really effectively works? Um, I mean, in terms of the infrastructure, the physical built environment side of it, uh, or a hospital where people get better faster because of the way it's, it's structured. You know, it's, it's using tools to analyze and understand that's really coming from these different technologies uh, in, you know, neuroscience, um, the study of the environment in terms of methods like space syntax, and then also the kind of mobile tracking and, and using apps and uh, software. So we are seeing a revolution, I think, in how we can look at these problems. But it's um, it's going to be hard because you've got a lot of a lot of players that need to come together. But I think most importantly, there's a really positive tone to the sound of your voice there. Mm. That we are at the beginning of something. Yeah, yeah, you can feel it. And I speak to different people; they're all slowly coming together. It's a sense of things may well change yeah <laughs> i say may because i'm a scientist you know even when i'm like yeah this is amazing uh, you should always be uh, careful yeah and do you feel that's just something you're experiencing here at ucl that's quite an international story that you're finding uh, yeah that that is there is a sense that, yeah there's definitely an international flavor to that as well um there, there are things going on in the u.s that are really exciting and across europe there are different networks of people exploring these things uh, countries like Finland seem to be doing some really exciting work. Um, so the other angle as well that's happening um, is is the advance of immersive virtual reality. We've had virtual reality since you know the 90s. Um, you know it was very heavy and very expensive to play with virtual reality in the 90s, um, but it's become very very relatively cheap now. Um, so. I think unless you really tried out immersive reality and done various experiences with it, 
Um, it's very easy to dismiss it as some sort of glib, you know, bit of fluff, not particularly useful. But um, now having spent some time working with immersive virtual environments, I'm really blown away by the potential there to simulate environments. You know, I'm not sure I'd want to buy. I previously bought an apartment uh, on plan where I could see the layout. I had not seen what it would actually be like until after I'd paid for it. I don't think I would dare do that now without some immersive virtual experience of that space. And if I was redeveloping a building, there's no way I would want to just rely on the plans. I'd want to see it in immersive VR. So I think that tech is really um, changing things. It's just one extra tool amongst many now that we can see for... Uh, bringing the real world into the lab um, for experiment, but for commercial companies as well to, um, you know, architects uh, and other people interested in, in spaces. It's a really powerful tool that I think I'd underestimated until the last month how uh, powerful it can be. And it's only just beginning you get the sense of uh, where this could go. Yeah, yeah. because yeah, because uh, VR is getting widely used uh, throughout the architecture field and the, the broad built environment planning, but it, it does feel that the you know, there isn't enough of the sort of the, the broader human experience factor fed mm. back into that design process that we're we're modeling to to understand and see what it looks like again and understanding. But do we know enough about how the different variables of people that are going to be using it, inhabiting mm. it, and not just looking at it in the first instance? Because I think mm. something that we skirted around was, um, you know, this idea of experiencing something for the first time. So we talked about the, I think you talked about the going, people going around Soho Mm. and it's the first time they went around Mm. and there's something quite novel about, you know, when you experience something for the first time and your reaction to that. Mm. But, you know, how is, how do we understand people's reaction on a long-term point mm. of view? Mm. What what then becomes, you know, in my version of sustainability, not just the environmental, but the human sustainability mm. that we, mm. you know, the, you know, to, to take the recordings of someone looking at an apartment for the first time and going, oh, it's beautiful, but, mm. you know, really after mm. three years and it's been rainy for about two of those, mm. you know, what's your view, mm. what's your view on it there? And I think mm. that's an interesting understanding to, to start bringing into the sort of the data that we we capture and the mm. different models we might process when understanding and forecasting mm. people's ex- potential experience mm. of the space. And I think that's that's an interesting subject to kind of then bring into the professionals industry. Um, mm. I, I, personally, mm. I, I think it's something that's very exciting to come for. And I don't know whether that's you as a, a researcher mm. feel the the potential capabilities, the modelling programs behind that, and whether people like the PhD students that you know are knocking on your door continuously going i want to work in the in you know with you in these environments do you feel like they're 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 really wanting to engage in these formats yeah i think i think still those students aren't i think a lot of people aren't aware of the full capability of the vr uh that it's you can also tell when you go into what's available on the online stores that there's there's not that much content I mean, a lot of it's gaming, but it doesn't need to be. Um, and there's, there's some really, there is some really interesting content on there. Um, so things are going to change, I'm sure, and the technology is going to keep getting better and better, I'd assume. Um, but uh, where it's all going to go is just still very hard to, to exactly predict. But it is exciting times, I think, yeah. Mm. Okay, that's that's great. Uh, Dr. Spears, thank you so much for your time. Uh, any comments, do let us know. But yeah, thank you very great. much. It's been a pleasure. 
So a big thank you to Dr. Spears for his insights into what academia is looking at achieving, but I think most importantly highlighting where opportunities lie in closing the gaps, creating better collaborations, helping ideas matriculate faster with more effectiveness. If you're interested in reading more about his work, he regularly releases his articles and essays via his Twitter feed. The handle is at Hugo Spears, which is all one word. And all that's left for me to say is thank you very much for listening. If you didn't find us on iTunes, you can find us there. So please do leave us a review, hopefully a good one. Uh, And do sign up to the website to receive any newsletters about what we're doing. If you have any questions, then feel free to send us an email at podcast at thecentriclab.com. And do give us a follow on Twitter via at The Centric Lab. Bye.